Good morning, guys. How about we open a Bible to the book of John? We've been in a series going through this amazing gospel account. Uh, if you guys don't have Bibles, raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. Uh, John chapter 1 is where we're at. Uh, I want to pray real quick before we jump in. Uh, what I'm going to do is we're just going to begin to read the passage. I'll make some comments uh, as we go through this, as we are accustomed to doing. Uh, we typically just take books of the Bible and go through them. We, we, you know, as we gather, one of the things that we need more than anything is not just simple um, opinion pieces or commentary. We, we need God's word. Like that becomes kind of our daily bread that helps us uh, survive in our lives. So I'm going to pray real quick and then uh, let's jump in. So Jesus, we commit this time in your hands. We pray, Father, that you would work, move, have your way. God, just as we sing, just thank you for uh, Jenna leading us into this time of once again laying our lives down before you, once again being reminded of the love and the acceptance that we have through Jesus, once again reminding us of the identity that either we have or that's available to us because of Jesus, unmerited, undeserved by grace we have been called into this. So, God, we commit this morning in your hands. We pray, Father, for your revelation to reshape and remake us as people. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I mentioned, we've been in this little series going through the Gospel of John and uh, just making our way through it. One of the key features that John is wanting to do is wanting to consistently remind us uh, there's this massive host of testimony of people that are testifying, uh, declaring that Jesus is somebody. Now, I, I don't know who you think Jesus is or how you come to think about who Jesus is. And uh, not just simply in terms of like a historic figure, but actually as somebody present right now in your life that has the capacity and the ability to reshape your life. I love the fact, one of the songs that we sang, just this little phrase, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. Think about this. What are you building your life upon? What idea, what ideology, what concept, what, what religious claim, what uh, historical figure, what are you building your life upon? And again, if your answer is, the common answer in today's world is, I just, I build upon myself. I do what I want to do. I live into my own self-actualized reality. The, the fact is, is how, how sustainable is that? How life-giving is that? Long-term, maybe in the immediate moment, it might provide some temporary functionality and benefits, but in long-term, I mean, I'm talking when you hit gnarly stuff, when things get really challenging and difficult, how sustainable is that? Is it a firm foundation, as we just saying? Is it a firm foundation? And, and I would argue, and as well as not just myself, but biblical authors, but also uh, uh, multitudes upon multitudes of people throughout the past 2,000 plus years. In fact, if you were even go back into the ancient Old Testament days, we're talking thousands of years, 6,000 years of people that have trusted in Yahweh as their God. And they found that God is a firm foundation, that God is one that sustains them, as opposed to shifting uh, foundations that we find consistently within our culture throughout the day and age in which we live in today. So as we begin to jump into this, uh, I want for us to just to listen again. Think of it as these are testimonies of people that have found 
Jesus to be who he claims to be, that is, the King, the Messiah, the one that has come to take away our guilt, our shame, our sin, and create a brand new life for us to give us a hope and a future. That's the beauty of what the gospel offers over and over and over again. So with that being said, I want to jump in John chapter 1. I'm going to just start at verse 43. We'll read through it. I'll make some comments, and we'll just make our way till we're all done. All right, here we go. We'll read from uh, verse 43 all the way to the end of the chapter. So next week, we'll begin to look at chapter 2, which is great. If you guys are familiar with one of the very first miracles of Jesus, the story of Cana, you know, where he turns water into wine, it's awesome. We will get to that next week, but we'll finish up this chapter right now. All right, verse 43, chapter 1, says this, the next day, stop, all right. What's what, what's going on here? So if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we've been kind of in this uh, sequence of events uh, that Jesus uh, is being told us in this story by the writer John that there's a series of like several days that he describes. Jesus, first of all, is down in this region called Bethany. In fact, I'm going to show this map right now. How about we go to the map? Because um, some of you guys woke up this morning and man, I pray, pray Jesus does make sure Pastor Brian has a map. You're welcome. God answered your prayer. So here you go. Yes. All you weird, nerdy people out there, good, just like me, just like me. I'm, I'm like, I like maps. I like seeing what's going on. So anyways, uh, so Jesus would be at this particular point in this sequence of days or events down in the region of Bethany, so in the lower right-hand corner of the page here, or the map. Uh, you see the Sea of Galilee. If you see the big map over there, that's kind of the bigger picture. If you guys are familiar with it, a little bit of the geography of where Israel is, uh, it's on the Mediterranean Sea, right between uh, Egypt and Turkey. Uh, but the Sea of Galilee is a pretty large, think like um, like Tahoe, kind of a large body of water. It's beautiful. Um, that a lot of the ministry of Jesus was around this particular region. So I think it's helpful to think in terms of some of the names that we're going to be reading about today, like Nazareth or Capernaum or Bethsaida. Uh, these are within, you know, that's helpful, I think, in terms of about 20-mile distance between Nazareth and Capernaum. So that means that Bethany and Nazareth is about 20 miles, somewhere around there, give or take, maybe 5 or 10 miles. But again, these people, they didn't have cars. No, There's no Uber drivers back then. So they, they literally would walk from spot to spot. Um, and so... This would take like a day's journey. So at the moment that we're reading right now, it says on the next day, Jesus would have been in this region of Bethany, uh, as the story has been taking us up to this point. Uh, and at this point, Jesus is going to now go up to Galilee. So just so you can get a little bit of visual as to what's happening. Now, Jerusalem's not even on this big map. Jerusalem's got a pretty lengthy amount of way down uh, in the middle of the area of uh modern-day Israel. So let's, with that being said, let's jump back into the text. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Verse 44, now Philip was at Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and then said to him, we have found him who Moses and the law and the prophets have wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, this is the son of Joseph. Verse 46, Nathanael then said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip then said to him, come and see. What I love about this like initial character development is the way that this is written, uh, John is basically introducing us to a, to a host of characters, but he's giving us little bits and pieces and details. One of the things I love about this is that this is a historical account of the life of Jesus. So a lot of times people like to take the Bible and say, you can't trust it. You cannot trust it. It was written by so many people over so many years. It's an untrustworthy document. Um, I would gently push back and say there's literally more ability to trust, more manuscripts, evidence, more uh, research to trust the Bible as an accurate document than there is Shakespeare. 
Fact. You can do the research. I'm, I would, in fact, I would highly recommend if you've ever come to a place in your life where you're like, I don't know if I can trust the Bible. Just do the research. There are great uh, podcasts and uh, videos that you can watch that would be helpful in terms of helping at least build up some degree of confidence for you so that you know that you can trust this. It was a historical document. It actually happened. This was not just simply a fable or a fairy tale. This is an actual historical account of the life of Jesus, which means it took place in space and time, which means it's something that we can rely upon and trust that actually took place. And one of the ways in which uh, we know this is because of bits and pieces of detail that are given to us about these people. But each of these people that he's going to introduce to us are people that are real-life human beings, just like you and I. They've had life challenges and hardships and difficulties and sufferings and uh they've had annoying brothers and sisters and uh relatives that are an embarrassment to the family they, they lived a real life just like you and i and they were encountered by jesus just like you and i and they were brought into a place of having to make a choice and a decision will i follow jesus or will i deny jesus will i do what jesus asked of me or will i not do what jesus asked me do what i want to do there are people of real time with real consequences just like you and i so what we see within this story one of the things that jesus is going to say repeatedly over and over again we'll get to this more in terms of the end as far as the summary goes but one of the things that we're going to see over and over again throughout the gospel of john as well as throughout the other writings of uh, these uh, gospel accounts is that jesus is repeatedly saying one specific thing a lot of things but one thing and repeatedly jesus keeps saying number one he'll keep saying repent just even as we were leading uh during the time of worship uh, was led to us think about the word repent. A lot of times the word repent has a lot of baggage on it. Like a negative word, repent. It's because there's always that angry guy at a football game just yelling at people. Like, that's unfortunate. The word repent is actually a beautiful word that leads us into trust and confidence in Jesus. Trust and confidence in Jesus. It's a beautiful word. It's an invitation to really truly enter into a whole new lifestyle. And this is one of the things that Jesus is saying often. Uh, another thing that Jesus says often that we just read is he says, follow me. He's repeatedly looking to people in their eyes saying, follow me. Take my life upon you. Go where I'm leading. Love what I love. Hate what I hate. Go where I go. Christianity is not just simply about a, I don't even know what you think about faith. Again, we can say, oh, I got faith. What does that even really mean? What is that, what is that even, how does that even take shape in our culture today? So to simply say I got faith in something could simply mean like I have confidence that there's a president somewhere in the White House. I, I believe in that. That doesn't have any consequences that's at all whatsoever about your life. That's a different idea of faith that I think the New Testament is introducing us to. The New Testament is basically saying faith, have faith in me, which basically means follow me. Let Jesus be the one that determines the course of your life. Let Jesus be the one. Whatever it is that he's inviting us into to follow is a way Christianity, here's what's really important. The big E on the ITR I don't want you to miss is that Christianity is all about and all of life. Faith. It affects everything about you. How you think about your money, how you think about your time, your sexuality, has to do with that, how you think about marriage, how you think about church involvement, how you think about your identity. Jesus invites us to rethink everything on our landscape. Everything on the stage of our life is under the headship or the lordship of Jesus. There's not one area of our life 
that Jesus wants to intercept and bring forth life and goodness in and throughout. But the way he does that is by us turning to him and saying, I will follow you. Which means, on the one hand, of saying, I will follow you is another way of saying, I will not follow myself. I won't trust my heart because it's deceptive. It's always prone to movement and change and malleability. I won't follow the crowd because the crowd is crowd is constantly moving and shaping and reshaping and thinking a new thing and preaching another thing. I will follow the eternal base note that you are into whatever it is the future that you're leading me into. So Jesus repeatedly inviting people to follow him. Now again, as we see right here, he has this encounter with this guy named Philip from Bethsaida. He is the brother, or he's from the city of Andrew and Peter, which we just, if you were with us last week, we talked a little bit about Andrew and Peter. Now he says, Philip uh, found Nathaniel and said, and we found, uh, we found whom Moses and the law and all the prophets. Now, again, if you're Jewish or familiar with the way that Jews would have written, the idea of the law, the prophets, and Moses is another word. There's actually a word for this. It's called the word Tanakh. If you ever heard of the word Tanakh, it literally is just a, an acronym for the law, the writings, and the prophets. Literally just an acronym for that. And this is exactly what he's saying. So this deeply tethers this first century document to the, the historical Jewish people. That this is a, they're looking to the scriptures and saying, this guy, Jesus, literally is the fulfillment of everything that we've ever dreamed of and hoped for and looked for. Again, not only is he rooted in space and time and history, but he's also rooted deeply into the actual story of God. It says, we found the one, come, it's actually Jesus of Nazareth. Now again, the word Jesus of Nazareth, number one, Jesus is his name, obviously. Of Nazareth would have been where Jesus was from, of Nazareth. So Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus from this particular city of Nazareth, which means um, little, little branch. Uh, he is also the son of Joseph. Or Bar Joseph, son of Joseph. Uh, verse 46, I love Nathaniel's response because he's the classic, uh, just like stereotypical. He's got his own biases, his own prejudices. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Anything good. Out of so for whatever the case, we know that Nazareth was probably about a city of like 200 people. It wasn't very big or a village of 200 people. And it was pretty likely that most people within that particular village were all relatives. They all knew each other. They kind of grew up with each other. But obviously with those biases and those prejudices that Nathaniel had, uh, he makes a statement, uh, can anything good come out of that? Now, again, I, I, I need to be careful because there's a handful of cities that come to my mind that I would say, can anything good come out of dot, 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 and then I get myself in trouble, and you guys send me emails, and I feel really bad. But give me some examples. Give me, I'm going to have you guys get me in trouble today. So I'm, I'll leave this to you. Can anything good come out of what? Did you say Turlock? Okay. I'm sorry. What? Roscoe. Roscoe. Barstow. Can anything good come out of Barstow? Where else? Come on, you guys, you know that we on the Central Coast have these prejudices. We, we know, we know something that most people don't know. We live in the best place in the world, right? Is that an understatement? So we have pride, arrogance, it's probably not good, but can anything good come out of dot, 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 where? Where else? Bakersfield, we already said that, Bakersfield, what else? We all, we all know Bakersfield, yeah, Las Vegas, all right, what else? Yeah, anyways, you get the idea, this is a fun little practice, huh? Anyways, um... I, yeah, I'm not even going to say it, but yes, this is the whole idea. We, we all have these uh, prejudices and biases, and Nathaniel had his own. So whatever the case is, he looks at Jesus, and he's like, can anything good? So immediately we realize that a lot of times, 
a lot of times the way that God works is good comes out of unexpected places. Just, you know, good comes out of unexpected places. God brings forth things. And, and, I, and I love the reality of that because think about how many areas in our lives that we would be prone to immediately assume that nothing good could come out of whatever. And it's exactly the space or the place that God says, I'm going to bring forth newness or life and goodness is going to come out of that. And that's one of the things that we notice with regard to that. Um, now, one of the things I think that's just important that John is wanting to kind of give us sort of like a rapid fire uh, round of testimony. Uh, and that's why we see names like Nathaniel and uh uh, Philip and Peter and Andrew and uh, some of the, John the Baptizer, that all of these are basic ways in which he's calling testimony. It's as if to say, what does the general public that has a name uh, based upon these certain people, what do they have to say about Jesus? And one of the things that he's weaving into the storyline is that each of these come to acknowledge that this Jesus, he first and foremost fits the profile of that which comes from the writings, Moses, and the prophets. In other words, the entirety of what they would describe as their, uh, their testament, their, their scripture, what we would call the Old Testament. They're saying that that bears testimony, that Jesus is who he claims to be. Now, as we move on, I want to pick it up at verse 47. It says, Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him, and he said to him, Behold, an Israel, Israelite indeed, uh, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael then said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip even called you, I saw you under the fig tree. And then Nathaniel then said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And then Jesus answered him, says, because I said, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. What I love about this whole little passage or this uh, dialogue going on between Jesus and this guy Nathaniel here is that, again, Nathaniel is just a normal, ordinary human being uh, who's just prone to normal life circumstances as you and I. It, but in this encounter, Jesus makes this statement. He's like, I, I saw you under the fig tree. And again, uh, there's a lot of scholars that debate exactly what that means, you know, cryptic language and ideas and all that. I, I'm going to leave all that to, to the scholars to kind of determine that. I, I think it's just kind of take it at face value. Whatever the case is, wherever Nathaniel was, he was laying under a fig tree. Who knows what was going on, knows what was in his mind, and nobody knows even where that victory was. Whatever the case was, whatever it was, uh, Jesus making this connection between him laying underneath the fig tree was, was enough to move him, to motivate him. Like, how did you know that? How did you know this was taking place? If you guys have been following the, the, the little movie miniseries or TV miniseries called The Chosen, they actually have this really cool, like, little scene where he's actually under the fig tree. And uh, they did a really good job, I think, kind of playing that up. It was really fascinating just to see that. And again, it's, a lot of it's just speculation. But uh, the point that I would make is that uh, whatever happens in this particular scene, it was enough to move his heart, Nathaniel, to, to be open to the fact that Jesus must be something more than just simply a traveling teacher now again philip then makes a statement or i should say should say nathaniel says to him rabbi you are the son of god the word rabbi just literally means teacher 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 you are the son of god it's a it's a big statement right here um there's at least three major titles that i want to highlight and then we'll kind of look at each one of them one by one we'll finish up with some final summary thoughts um so number one, he describes him as rabbi. You are the son of God. So make 
mental note of that. If you're writing down, writing notes, you can write down son of God. Number two, he uses the phrase king of Israel. We'll circle back to that as well. And then lastly, he, uh, Jesus describes himself um, in the very last verse of the entire chapter, verse 51. He says, and he said, I'm truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. So the word son of man. So those three phrases are really important, and I'll make some comment about them. But one of the things I want to encourage you to think about is that, number one, is that if you don't currently read the Bible on a regular basis, my gentle, loving encouragement to you would be to create space in your life or a regular cadence in your life where you're bringing in Scripture. Um, i said this many times. There's lots of great Bible apps to just find if you're not that great at actually sitting down and reading. I've told you this before. I'm not. I'll listen to the Bible a lot. You know, don't judge me. Faith comes by hearing. Some of you are like judging me, like, he doesn't read? No, I hear. I listen. I listen. Faith comes out hearing, hearing the word of God. Anyways, point, stupid joke. But the point that I would make is figure out a cadence in your life where you're getting scripture into your life on a regular basis. And when you come across certain passages or certain titles, especially titles of God, for example, Son of God, King of Israel, Son of Man, uh, use this as a moment to read, to meditate, and to reflect. Read meditate, reflect, like pause. Sometimes it's actually helpful to like really slow down in your Bible reading. In fact, in some ways it might even be better to just read smaller passages of scripture slowly, carefully, prayerfully than to read massive, you know, like I just read 18 chapters today. Good for you. How much of it do you remember? Oh, none of it because I just like sped through it. Uh, How helpful was that for you? Not helpful at all. But the point is that now there's place to reading large passages of quick amounts of time, that's fine, I guess. But I think there's something to be said about reading slowly and carefully through passages of Scripture and just reflecting upon it. In fact, the ancients had a phrase for this called Lectio Divina. The idea is just divine reading. The big idea behind that was to just slow the pace, to pray as you read the passage, to think about what it's actually saying, to ask God, God, what do you want to speak to me about this particular passage? What do you want to show me about you and about where I belong within the construct of who you are in light of this passage. And, and then just it's a slower form and processing of Scripture. But when you come across passages like this, for example, Son of God. Like, what does it exactly mean, Son of God? Uh, we know that this is a passage that gets uh, brought up throughout, especially the Old Testament. Uh, it's one that I think is Psalm 7, where it describes uh, the king who's being anointed by God to be a king. Uh, describes him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Um, this idea of a son, one that's related to God. Adam was described as a, as a son of God. So this concept of son, sonship, in relation to uh, Yahweh God, is one of incredible uh, weightiness and power and authority and privilege. And so whatever the title of that that's being ascribed to him, he wants him, to, first of all, to identify the fact. And again, for you, as those of us that are reading this letter, kind of a, a secondary uh, recipients of this letter. It's like you know, reading someone else's mail that was written to somebody else. Uh, but then we're reading and we're absorbing the, the beauty of this. So what we know so far is that Jesus is the Son of God. That's how he's being identified. Secondly, he describes him as the King of Israel. Again, another like, interesting phrase, King of Israel. And this would have been uh, very resonant within most Jews living in the first century. Um, now, again, here's what's fascinating about this. The word anointed or Messiah or Christ literally means king as well. Um, so this particular phrase, you are the king of Israel, 
I think what is being defined or described here um, out of the mouth of Philip is his whole point is that, or I'm sorry, Nathaniel, is that Jesus, you are the king of Israel. So Israel obviously being a lo- localized zone or region, that you are the king over all of this. That's a fascinating claim. Um, did Israel already have a king? Yeah, technically. A guy named Caesar. Like, where was he ruling from? Not Israel. He was ruling from another region, from Rome. But he had vassal or, or other leaders that were um, overseeing that particular area. One of them, by a particular time frame, was a guy named Pontius Pilate. He was kind of like a, I don't know what you call it, magistrate. His, his main job was to keep peace in that particular region. But it wasn't, he wasn't operating on his own. His whole job was to basically represent rightly the real king, the real emperor. Um, which, by the way, the emperor, his, it was not uncommon for Caesar to have him printed on the coinage of the day, son of God. Son of God. So when the emperor, who is the king of Israel, uh, is contrasted with the statement that's being declared here, Jesus, you are the king of Israel. Is this a political statement? It's totally political. In fact, it's pretty counter-revolutionary. It's, it, it, could be, it could get you killed. Because Caesars, I don't know if you know this or not, they're not, they don't necessarily take too kindly to having rivals, especially under their own noses, especially within their own tax brackets and tax bases. They, they don't want rivals. And so this statement, Jesus, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel, is, is, is dangerous. But I would also add, short-sighted. It's not complete. How do we know this? Because as we read the story, again, this is coming from the mouth of a Jew who first century had limited perspective as to who Jesus truly is. In his mind, he's literally looking at Jesus in this context, you are the king of Israel, which is not untrue. It's totally true, but it's not the complete truth of who Jesus is. Because, for example, by the time you get to John chapter 3, we're, we're all familiar with that particular verse 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world. How big is the reign of Jesus? How large? For now We've talked about this before. For a king to actually be a king, a king needs land or soil or space to govern. What we would call a domain, kingdom. He needs a domain. How extensive is the domain of Jesus? Is it limited strictly and only or exclusively to Israel? No. It's worldwide. It's cosmic. By the time we get to the book of Romans, we begin to realize that literally Jesus rules the entire cosmos. Everything. There's not one square inch. Uh, I think it was Abraham Kuyper described, in all creation that God does not declare mine. Everything in this cosmos, unseen and seen, is something that's been declared to be under the reign of King Jesus. Why is that important? Because I think, again, we're reading this story uh, on, a, on a journey of discovery. Who exactly is this son of Joseph, this Jesus of Nazareth? Is he just a rabbi? Is he just a teacher? Is he just a cool guy? No, we're learning on this journey, he's actually the son of God. He's the king of Israel. He's the one that's come to rescue the world from its sin, which means all of us. His aim is global. This is amazing 
to consider. Because I think at the end of the day, one of the things I think the writer John wants us to realize that all of these guys are on this journey of realizing that Jesus is not just simply this localized divinity whose only aim is to protect that little tribe of people called Jews. He's come to save the whole world. Why is this important? I think it's important for a couple reasons, but one big main reason is what we're beginning to realize so far in the Gospel of John is that God's aim is worldwide. God's aim is literally to not omit or not isolate or not uh, alienate any human being that bears his image. It doesn't matter what tribe you come from. It doesn't matter what tongue you speak. It doesn't matter what color of your skin you have. It doesn't matter anything about this. God loves you. He's for you. He's with you. He's out to rescue you. He's out to offer you hope and salvation and life and goodness and grace. All of these things are part of his aim. I'll give you an example of this. This past week, I was listening to a pastor, and he made this statement. And on, at, at minimum, it was just simply a really bad use of language. At worst, it was really bad theology, and it was a complete uh, means of distortion of the image and the nature and the work of who God is. He makes this statement on his actual Facebook page, uh, inviting people to a group thing that he was saying. He says, God is a nationalist. And his whole point. I think his whole point, again, to try to give him the benefit of the doubt, was to say that, therefore, we, are, we should be nationalists. Our main aim should be focused upon our nation because God loves and cares about our nation, which I think he does. But if, if, again, how you define that, if you mean that God is a nationalist, meaning he only cares about America and not Afghanistan, not Iran, not Israel, not South Africa, if, you, if that's all that God is, what you've done is you've reduced the king of the universe to a cosmic or to a, to a tribal deity or entity. That is called idolatry. It's a reversal of everything that Jesus has come to accomplish and do. But that being said, I think it's important to just kind of ask the bigger question. Then for us, you and I, living in a culture today that find ourselves in kind of a, a pluralistic Western democracy, how should we as Christians live? Knowing that the revelation that we're going to be getting from John, as well as New Testament writers, that this Jesus has come not to just simply focus his efforts and energy upon one small tribe of people called the nation of Israel, and that's it, to keep it exclusively in-house, but his aim is to go global, to invite all people, no matter what walk of life they come from, into repentance and confidence or faith in him and his ways. How should we, as followers of Jesus, knowing that this is the real heart of God, live in a culture that's pluralist, within its mindset, within this Western democracy. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said this, that the church must be reminded once again that it is not to be the master or the servant of the state, but the conscience of the state. I love that, the conscience of the state. So here's the thing. I thought it would be kind of fun to just kind of throw out a couple of things. I have five things up here, so just think of this as the part of the show where Pastor Brian gives you a little bit of advice on the life and flourishing within a pluralistic Western democracy. Democracy, right? So there you go. You're welcome. It's a mouthful. So these are just five thoughts that I had to maybe give to you guys to think about this. Because, again, it's, this is not just simply to look at all the negative stuff that could be going on in our world today, but how to actually equip and help us think biblically, I think, in terms of 
uh, according to, and oriented to our identity in Christ in ways that I think lead to life and flourishing. So I'm going to go through these number one. Uh, the first one, I'll just uh, make a real quick statement. It says, number one, don't exchange your Christ-shaped identity. I want to be really careful here. If you're not a Christian here today, this, this would not necessarily apply directly to you. If you are a follower of Jesus today, if your heart, your hope is in the eternal God and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that has been finished and accomplished, like how to think about this. Number one, I would say don't exchange your Christ-shaped identity for a culture-reflecting party. So the parties, the both polarized parties, left and or right, they not only shape culture, but I think they also reflect culture. So culture goes upstream and also comes downstream. So with that being said, I want us to think real carefully about this. Don't exchange your Christ-shaped identity for a culture-reflecting party. In other words, avoid conformity to the particular binary. It's easy for us, for someone to say, well, you have to decide, left or right. And as a follower of Jesus, I can simply say, I don't have to decide that. I, I follow Jesus. I'm not loyal to the... Uh, to the, uh, this is so cheesy and dumb, but I didn't make this up. I'm not loyal to the donkey. I'm not loyal to the elephant. I'm loyal to the lamb. I've told you that before. I didn't, I didn't make this up. It's so cheesy. Someone should make a t-shirt, a t-shirt about it. It's awesome. But the point of that, that's really, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is where our loyalty, ultimate loyalty lay to the, to the lamb, to Jesus. And we need be careful and make certain that our identity is not getting washed or lost or muddled within the context of that divisiveness, that left-right divisiveness. Or if you want to think of it in this way, it's a cult of party. What cult do you belong to? I belong to the leftist cult. I belong to the rightist cult. I belong to the conservative uh, cult. I belong to the progressive cult. It's a cult, guys. It's a cult. It's a cult-like mentality that has an enemy that must be focused on and attacked and destroyed. That's not how Jesus people live. Jesus people live by saying, I pray for my enemy. I love my enemy. I show the kindness of Christ to my enemy. You don't find that in other cults. But that being said, I want to go into number two. Be informed. Be informed. Uh, What policies or politicians lead to and or obstruct the greatest good? Lead to and or obstruct the greatest good. Again, I like the idea in the book of Jeremiah where it describes uh, Jeremiah as a community of people in exile. It says, seek the welfare of the city, for in its welfare is also your welfare. The big idea is that as followers of Jesus, I think there is an application here. We live in and as exiles in America. We think it's a great nation. I, I think America is awesome. I think there's a lot of credible benefits to our country. But the reality is, it's not home. It's not heaven. It's not the place where I, I will live for throughout all eternity under its particular operating system. I live in as an exile in this incredible country under a different operating system, the operating system of Jesus. So with that being said, how do I live in such a way, I think, to be able to be really informed? What are the current moments or things, uh, policies, politicians, that can oftentimes lead to the greatest good or obstruct it? There's top five issues. I just read this out uh, this, this morning. Uh, the top five issues that right now Californians, you and I, are, are facing. These are the top five ones, not necessarily in any particular order. Number one, inflation. Number two, crime. Number three, still on the hot uh, item list, is abortion, uh, rights, uh, life, uh, the most vulnerable, protecting the most vulnerable, education, taxes. All of these things are the top five issues. The fifth, or the second, uh, third, sorry, third thing, third thing to be aware of is vote. I think we have this really unique opportunity in which we live in to make wise 
choices of the rights and privileges that you and I have. Uh, one of the things, uh, practices that the elder team does every single week, we come together, we pray for you guys as a church, pray for specific needs, but we also spend time uh, starting by just reading the scripture. We just read through a particular passage every single time and we talk a little bit about it. This past week we read, uh, I think it's like uh, Acts chapter 16, where it talks about Paul was thrown in prison, he gets released out of prison, and uh, because everybody finds out that he's imprisoned as a Roman citizen, which is like, you don't do that. You don't put a Roman citizen in prison. Paul realizes, I've been put in prison wrongly. And they're like, we're going to release you quietly. Paul's like, no, you're not. You're going to go get the magistrates of the city, and I want them to walk me out of the jail cell. And you're like, wait, that's like Paul flexing his, 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 uh, his muscle in terms of his rights. That's exactly what Paul is doing. And again, you can say, is that a prescription or a description? It's more of a description. And in other words... Uh, it's just simply describing what Paul did. But, you know, we, we live in this incredible country that we have these opportunities to be able to use uh, the voting box, to be able to be a part of this. So use that as something as God informs and instructs and guides you. Uh, the fourth thing, pray. Pray and act according to your prayer. Pray. First of all, I would say even first of all, above all other things, pray. God, I pray for this country. I pray for my state. I pray for the homeless challenges within my state. I pray for those that are suffering and struggling to pay their bills. I pray for the most vulnerable, for the unborn. I pray that you would give wisdom and guidance and bring peace into this community. I pray for mothers that have encountered unwanted or unplanned uh, 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 children and, and the challenge and the difficulties they face raising a child alone. How can I not just simply pray for them, but be an answer to those prayers as well. By the Holy Spirit empowering and fusing you to enter into those spaces of darkness and hardship. To be a part of what God wants to do to bring forth goodness in all of these particular areas. So pray. And then lastly, be a preserving presence. This is exactly what Jesus meant by be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. At the end of the day, guys, Christians throughout all history have lived in a variety of states and nations that have not had governmental systems that coddle their sensibilities. In fact, in many ways, are very hostile to their sensibilities. And yet they're thriving in the power of the Spirit to do amazing things for Jesus. I've told you this before, the fastest growing church in the world right now. In fact, I would even argue maybe the strongest growing church in the world right now. Guess where it's at? It's Iran. All sorts of studies have been done. Iran. People are coming to faith in droves. They've been disillusioned by the, by the lies and the deception of the cult of Islam. And they're coming to faith, realizing that Jesus doesn't condemn them for their sins. Jesus carries their sin. They've come to faith in Jesus because Jesus alone is the one that offers hope in the midst of a world that's filled or riddled with uncertainty or shakeability. And then as we finish this, the last little title that we see is that Jesus says, and you will see the Son of Man ascend and descend. Now this is the, a, a wink back to um, Jacob who falls asleep on a rock and he has this image of uh, Old Testament of God, uh, the angels ascending and said, Jesus is envisioning, he's saying, I, I'm that ladder that heaven and earth overlap in me, through me, by me, because of me. 
uh, he uses this, they will see the Son of Man. And this is a direct quote out of uh, Daniel chapter 7. In fact, if you're taking notes, you can write that down and look it up later. Daniel chapter 7, one of the most uh, compelling, most beautiful images of the Old Testament describe this unique character that ascends to the right hand of God. Who is he? Jesus is saying, I'm that guy. I've come to represent humanity and all of its brokenness and sin and ruin and make them new again so that they can rise to what I call them into. You guys, Jesus is radical in his claim and what he promises. And in summary, I'm done. I think about, in terms of uh, what we just read, to put some summary thoughts to this, I think there's at least three things that Christianity as a faith is all about. Number one, it's a faith that involves uh, follow me. Jesus is consistently saying, come follow me. This is an idea of personally following Jesus. So again, for some of you, you may have never really made just a personal commitment to Jesus. Maybe you've been brought up in church, you're still going on the faith of your mom or your dad or your grandma or someone in, their, in your family line, upline, whatever, that has just lived a good life, and you're, you're kind of under their, their umbrella. At the end of the day, that's not how this works. At some point, it's not an individualistic religion, because when you get brought into Jesus, you're brought into a family, but it does begin by us having a personal faith or confidence of saying, I will, I follow Jesus. Have you followed Jesus? Have you stepped? Have you personally stepped into that? Said, yes, Lord, I will devote all that I am to you. Secondly, it's a go and tell. It's where Jesus would say, go into all the world and tell, preach, proclaim. This is kind of a funny thing because over the past like 20 years, Christians have been like, ah, I'm, I don't want to be so, I don't want to be preachy. I don't want to be that guy that shows up at the football game that's yelling at everybody. Then A, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. B, uh, don't be ashamed of proclaiming the good news. I, I'll, I'll be really clear about this. I'll, I'll put it into a question because it's like, I, I hear that's like less offensive. Does, am I going to say one particular party, does the left or the right, just being very ambiguous here, do they have a tendency to preach their agenda? And I mean preach their agenda over and over and over again. Of course they do. It's not benign. The message is not benign. It's not just, hey, whatever it is that you want to do, it's all good. It's like, no, here's what is up. Here's the morality we need to live by. Here's the ethic we're promoting. You better do it. If you don't, we will, con- we will cancel you. But, man, we've got the words of life if you've met Jesus. Like, I can't think of a which described as good news. It's the proclamation of something that actually brings life transformation. So secondly, it's a go and tell to communicate. And this, this is a muscle that we can all like work on, like how to, how to be better at going and telling and communicating and living out the faith or evangelism, what that looks like. But then lastly, it's a come and see. It's always an invitation to come and bring others into the beauty of Jesus. I've said this before over and over again. Christianity is not first and foremost a series of, of ideas and thoughts and concepts that you need to agree or align with. It's about the beauty of Jesus, the beauty, something that's compellingly beautiful. To the degree that we see it as compellingly beautiful, man, we want to invite people into that. We want people to see that, not so that they can conform to a certain ideological structure, but that their life can be taken up by the beauty of Jesus and made transformed by the beauty of Jesus. And with that being said, I'm done. I want to pray for us right now, though. How about we all stand, and as we conclude, I want to just pray over us that we would take to heart just what Jesus 
is inviting us into. Uh, again, no matter where you're at, my, my hope would be that if you're here this morning, you, you don't know Jesus. You've never personally stepped into all that Jesus has. You, you could do that right now. You can just ask Jesus, I want to step into all that you have for me right now. We will have some people up here to pray with you and just right afterwards. But I want to pray over us right now that we would then step into this world and all that God has for us. So Jesus, right now, we, we ask you, God, that would you just take your word and seal it deeply into our hearts. Let it bring transformation. Help us to be part of the work uh, of bringing forth life and goodness in this world. Help us to be agents of goodness and beauty as we go forth. So Holy Spirit, empower us and enable us to be all that you call us to be. And I even pray, God, right now, that if there are any here right in this moment, that maybe they don't know you, maybe they don't really know for certain if they've ever truly stepped into a life devoted to you. God, I, I pray specifically for them. Would you bring them towards beauty? Bring them towards light. Bring them towards the love that you offer. You alone are our only foundation upon which really to build our lives where there will be any form of stability. So Jesus, we trust you right now alone for who you are and for what you said you would do and what you promised to bring forth in this world. So we confess sin to you. We place our confidence and our trust in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.